What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 104, A Wealthy House. In this episode, we begin a loose series exploring the daily life of Egyptians during the New Kingdom. First up, the homes of the elite, the best documented and the most sumptuous houses in the land. How did the other half live? We go in search of some answers. This episode is brought to you by Skip Howard, who kindly supported the research single-handedly. Skip, thank you for your support. May the great Imhotep, a man who became a god, support you in your building projects and keep your mathematics true, always. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode is an introduction to some aspects of ancient life. To keep things straightforward, I want to focus on three topics only. That'll help us to keep everything in mind, and give us a foundation for future episodes to build on. So in this episode, we will look at how 18th dynasty Egyptians, specifically the elite, how they enjoyed food, the furniture they used, and the houses in which they lived. These three topics have abundant evidence, particularly from the period between 1400 and 1300 BCE, where our narrative currently sits. Our sources for this material are, you guessed it, mostly funerary. Tombs, paintings, and burials give us a colourful overview of elite life, specifically the lives of men residing at Thebes in the reign of Amunhotep III. Now that's a pretty narrow category of people to build a daily life episode on, but not to worry, dedicated episodes on women will follow, along with separate studies of children, the middle and lower classes, and the elderly. Each of these groups leaves just enough evidence to fill their own episode each, and too much to cram in here. So if you don't hear your favourite aspect of life, never fear, we will get there in due course. So the sources for this episode are varied and rich, literally. From archaeological studies, we can maybe get a sense of how a wealthy Egyptian household spent their days at home. Let's start with the food. We've touched on food a little bit in the podcast. It's one of those topics I've been saving for a rainy day, or an appropriate break in the narrative. Fortunately, the 18th dynasty starts to offer a lot of evidence for Egyptian eating habits. Remarkably, this evidence isn't just artistic, we also have physical examples of their food. In my opinion, food is the best way to experience a culture. Monuments and architecture are cool, but food? Give me all the food. You learn more about a person based on what they eat and how they eat than you will from an hour of conversation. Are they messy or fastidious? Are they generous or greedy? Do they prioritise taste or is food merely a tool for them to refuel? 
I love observing these things in my friends and people I meet. I would do a lot to see how different Egyptians enjoyed their repast. Food production was the main occupation in ancient Egypt. Whether it was a farmer working day in, day out, an aristocrat planning their crops and budgeting their harvests, or a scribe tallying up the produce and making sure it went to the right places, food production was a central part of life, no matter who you were. Wealthy Egyptians enjoyed a good variety of food. If they owned estates, they could arrange many different crops. If they had a surplus, they could trade that for exotic goods. By looking at ancient paintings and tomb contents, we can see that the rich Egyptian families feasted on many different things. One example in particular stands out. In the tomb of Ka and Merit, bowls and dishes were found piled with the foods they would enjoy in the afterlife. There was a rich variety, bowls of seeds and fruit like grapes, juniper berries and dates, dishes piled with duck and other salted meats, tamarind, loaves of bread, vegetables like onions, lettuce and cucumbers, and legumes like chickpeas, beans and lentils. The meat was particularly expensive. Beef, lamb, goat and pig were rare commodities. Poultry included ducks and geese, no chickens just yet. When the servants were preparing a meal for wealthy Egyptians, they had a good variety to choose from. Unfortunately, we don't have any ancient recipes to share. To date, no tomb has preserved any list of ingredients or method of cooking, so we have to guess based on a bunch of different sources. What we can say with some confidence is that the cooking itself might have been a man's job primarily. Tomb paintings and wooden statues show women preparing food like bread, but meat and vegetables and the actual cooking itself, that seems to have been done by the males. Based on this, we can do a rough reconstruction of how an ancient cook might have prepped his master's food. Let's use a goose as an example. Firstly, the servants would dress the goose, plucking the feathers, removing the organs, and then hang it up to dry. Tomb paintings show trusses of birds hanging on wooden poles, kind of like you might find in a Chinese supermarket today. Once the bird was plucked and ready, the cooking could begin. There were different ways to do this. Egyptians would prepare their meat in a variety of ways. The most common seems to have been frying. The cooks would place the meat in dishes with fat or vegetable oil and let it sizzle over the fire. Delicious, not so healthy, but worth it. Other styles of cooking show up, like boiling the meat, stewing it, or roasting it depending on the situation. In one painting, we see a man stirring a large cauldron while cuts of meat sit around him. A simple variety of dishes using the same meat in different ways. For the goose, a cook might use a skewer to hold the bird over the fire and roast it, or place cuts in a pan and set them over the flames. There's even a model of this, an adorable wood carving that shows a man squatting before a fire. In his right hand, he holds a wooden fan for encouraging the flames. In his left, he holds a chunk of duck meat ready to burn. The flame itself is a little wooden cone painted red and black with charcoal. It's wonderful. Realistically, cooking took a long time, so the chefs probably spent most of the day preparing the different meals. Fires had to be stoked constantly and monitored in case the flames got out of control. Meat took a long time to cook on an open flame. Add to that the bread preparation and the various vegetables, and a cook was probably kept busy from before dawn to after sunset. 
Whenever the master needed food, there were options available. To eat, wealthy Egyptians sat beside small tables on which were piled the dishes of food. There's no evidence for large dining tables, more like small surfaces for a collection of plates. Presumably, servants were constantly replenishing the dishes or replacing them as new courses were served. Interestingly, we rarely see families eating together. Apart from banquet scenes, most tomb paintings show individuals or couples dining alone. I think we should assume that that's more of an artistic convention rather than reality. In daily life, food probably was consumed altogether. It's much easier to prepare food for the large group at one time, and it serves a valuable social function, keeping the family in touch. Now, all this cooking is good enough, but what did it taste like? What spices did the Egyptians use? Well, that's tricky. We know that they used salt, or hemat, as well as oil. Animal fat was popular, at least in the richest circles like the royal palace. Vegetables like onions, garlic, and radishes added extra flavor, and some spices have been tentatively identified from texts. If the linguists are correct, the Egyptians may have flavored their foods with cumin, called tepnen, or dill, imeset. They also used coriander, shao, and vinegar, chemej. Finally, evidence from the Middle Kingdom suggests that the Egyptians grew mustard, and one of the 20th dynasty kings, Ramesses III, offered gifts of rosemary and cinnamon to the temple of Amun. That's a delicious variety, in my view, certainly better stocked than my spice rack, which is woeful. I really should cook more. Spices and meats aside, though, the staples of daily life were bread and beer, and this was probably the same for everyone, rich or poor. Cereals, and the products derived from them, are too simple and useful to disregard. From the lowliest peasant to the pharaoh himself, Egyptians ate plenty of carbohydrate-heavy grains. Bread was made of barley or emma, and it could be prepared in great quantities. Every morning, the bakers, women, would grind cereals down to a flour. Then they would mix that flour with water, slap it together into a basic loaf, and put it on a slab in the sun. Over the next few hours, the sun's heat would bake the bread, slowly making it ready for consumption. By evening, the loaf was ready for dinner, and then the next day's breakfast and lunch. A simple routine which persists in many parts of Egypt today. The elites might have presented themselves as duck-gorged, vegetable-laden gourmands, but even in the most lavish paintings, we still see plenty of dishes full of bread. The tomb of Ka and Merit preserves some physical examples. They had flatbreads leavened in the sun, which came in a variety of shapes. These included round loaves, a bit like pita bread, teardrop-shaped ones, a bit like naan bread, and thicker, cakey ones, a bit like polenta. These breads could be eaten plain, dipped in animal fats or oils, combined with vegetables or meat, and washed down with plenty of beer. With such a carbohydrate load, any Egyptian was ready to work for hours with a relatively full belly. The nutritional health of ancient Egyptians was, by modern standards, poor. Even the wealthy were relatively malnourished. Images of abundance may be just that, images. In the year of a good harvest, with the granaries full, the wealthy may have traded their cereals for richer goods. In lean years, though, even they probably had to do without. We can talk about opulence and sumptuous banquets, but the simple fact is, life in the ancient world was just one bad year away from very empty bellies. So yeah, 
Wealthy Egyptians enjoyed a relatively rich diet compared to their countrymen. Maybe they weren't the overfed, sugar-laden behemoths of modern Westerners, but still, they had a good table spread most of the time. Naturally, over the forthcoming centuries, Egyptians would be able to access different foods, so we'll revisit this topic again in some future story. Let's leave the cooks and the consumers, and go inside the house itself to look at the spaces which ancient Egyptians inhabited. From a couple of well-preserved sites, we can get a basic idea of how the elites used to live. From cities like Amarna and Gurob, we can get a sense of wealthy Egyptian homes. Depending on their social position or their job, ancient aristocrats may have lived either in country estates or urban townhouses. Some of them might have had both, a farming house that provided wealth, and a townhouse that served them day to day. Sadly, we only have evidence for townhouses, so we'll focus on those and see what we can find. Egyptian townhouses were tall, multi-storey structures surrounded by walls. These houses had all the amenities you'd expect, cooking areas, a garden, granaries, and a storeroom. With access to local markets and some sort of farming estate feeding the household, the aristocratic home was a semi-self-sufficient bastion in the middle of the town. When you approached the house and came through the gate into the main compound, you might find yourself standing beneath a porch. Based on artistic scenes, some houses had a pair of columns out the front, supporting a roof or sunshade overhead. This shaded area might cover the whole front of the house, providing a space for work and rest, or a place for guests to wait their turn. If we look at some of the houses at Deir el-Medina, which are middle-class homes west of Thebes, we see that some houses had benches out the front. Low mud-brick platforms, or mastabas, butting up against the front wall. These benches are a perfect spot to sit and chat, and they're still comfortable today. After waiting your turn, a servant would beckon you into the house to meet the owner. Going through the front door, mind your head, you would traverse an entrance hall, and then come into the front room. The front room was a long rectangular space with columns supporting the roof. It was dark, small windows set high in the walls let in a tiny bit of sunlight, but the idea was to have an interior that was cooler than the outside. According to one interpretation, coming in from the bright sunshine to the dark interior would force your eyes to adjust, blinking away those annoying sunspots which can take a surprisingly long time to fade. In the seconds it took your eyes to adjust, a crafty homeowner might be able to assess you unobserved from their shaded hall. Inside, the advantage belonged to the host. Elite houses could be complex. Past the front door and entrance hall, you might also have a central room. Even further back, more private spaces. The idea, perhaps, was to have a sort of hierarchy in where a guest was allowed. Strangers or low-prestige guests might only have access to the front hall, or even have to wait outside to speak with the homeowner when they left. More familiar or respectable guests might have access to the central room, and the true friends, or the privileged and august, might be permitted access to the private rooms themselves. In this hypothesis, Egyptian households may have been organized in a manner that reinforced their social hierarchy and honored the status of each participant. Of course, a house isn't just a place to show off your privilege or conduct business. 
There were also practical uses for these spaces. On work days, the homeowner might sit in the main hall to receive guests, but at other times, the servants might use these areas for manufacturing. If a homeowner was out or away from the city, the inner halls might easily be used for the many jobs which a household demanded. A basket maker or linen weaver might prepare tools and fabrics which the home needed. Alternatively, a visiting teacher might use the hall for educating the children and others from nearby households. A weaver, a basket maker, or a scribe might fulfill their duties here in the front rooms. Chances are, the lady of the house, the Nebet Peret, would supervise some of these activities. Children, of course, were a constant sight everywhere. Further inside, you would find the private spaces. In the back, an area for the family to rest and socialize, perhaps sharing their meals. Also, a space for worship, perhaps a small shrine with votive figurines. More on them another time. Finally, at the very back, a staircase would lead to the second floor. This was the most private area. Let's go up. Egyptian houses could be one, two, or even three stories depending on the owner's wealth and the time period they lived in. Building one story was simple enough. Four walls of mud brick and a roof of palm fronds. But extra levels required good quality wood to support the weight. For most people, that kind of structural integrity was hard to attain. For the elites, it was relatively common. On the second story, you might find the family room, a place for children, women, and close servants to work, relax, and sleep. Chairs, stools, and couches might be kept here, along with rugs or mats. If there were children, you'd probably find toys, more on those another day. Otherwise, there might be musical instruments or scribal tools, both for the man and for any children who were lucky to get an education. The second story of the townhouse would serve a variety of daily functions and a private space for the family. Up on the roof, there was an extra layer of use. As far as we can tell, many Egyptians probably used their roofs for sleeping. Up there, in the cool air, they could set up their beds or mats and rest under the stars safe and secure. Of course, it hardly ever rains in Egypt, and even today, this is quite a common practice. If you can stand the mosquitoes or protect yourself somehow, sleeping outside is a much cooler, more enjoyable experience. I recommend it. So the houses of the wealthy were complex affairs, two to three stories plus a rooftop, multiple rooms with different functions, and many different people living, working, and playing alongside one another. You have to wonder, how did anyone get any privacy? Privacy and the need for it is largely a cultural phenomenon. Your society and upbringing will have a huge impact on how much privacy you as an individual need and where you go to get it. We can't comment too much on this in ancient Egypt. The surviving evidence doesn't really talk about it. But, reading between the lines, we might suggest that an ancient person needing privacy could find it in a couple of places. Firstly, going for a walk was always a good option. With populations being far smaller than today, it was easier to find secluded areas untroubled by other people. Alternatively, you might go out on the Nile, Rowing a boat for an hour could be a lovely way to get some solitude. Finally, certain parts of the house, like the roof or second floor, might very well be empty at different parts of the day. 
If the kids were at school or learning a trade, and the servants were working on their jobs outside, the second story or rooftop might be free of interference. If you needed some privacy, or if you were a household couple who wanted to have sex, these spaces would probably give the necessary peace and quiet. Although homes were places of rest, socialising and work, there were probably still opportunities for quiet and calm, depending on where you went. So, that's an aristocratic house. A bunch of rooms, some tools, some people. Sounds kind of empty, right? What about their furniture? What did they use on a daily basis? Well, we have some wonderful evidence for 18th dynasty furniture. To round out this episode, let's see what they used in their day-to-day lives. We now come to New Kingdom furniture. For the privileged, furniture was a great tool to display status and prestige. We'll start with the most visible and useful piece, chairs. 18th dynasty chairs, at least the high quality ones, were usually made of cedar wood, often inlaid with ebony or ivory. They could be tall, suitable for sitting normally, or short, suitable for working on the floor. We have examples from both, and some of them are incredibly ornate. The seat itself was often curved inward slightly, to accommodate the buttocks and a cushion. The surface of the seat was made of wood or a lattice of woven reeds. This was probably quite comfortable, all things considered. Put a cushion on it, and you could sit restfully for several hours. The Egyptians did use cushions for their chairs. These would be linen over stuffing, perhaps straw or plant material. The fabric was dyed red or yellow, perhaps green, the sort of colours we see in Egyptian fabrics generally. Added to a chair of brown or ebony black with hints of ivory, the wealthy Egyptian homeowner may have seemed quite elegant indeed. What I would give to see an issue of Pharaonic Home and Garden, that would be awesome. Of course, it's not all chairs. Other pieces of furniture survive and give us a look at the rest of a household in elite Egypt. Let's look at the most essential piece of furniture, the bed. You spend a third of your life on the bed, approximately. It's the one amenity worth spending a decent chunk of money on. To the elite Egyptians around 1370 BCE, that was equally true. The best preserved beds come from high-status tombs, like the tomb of Yuya and Tuya, or the tomb of Ka and Merit. Looking at these pieces, we see some common elements. The beds were curved slightly inward in the middle, I guess to provide a posture more in line with how our spines curve. The frames are wood, but the middle part is made of matting, woven papyrus reeds forming a springy but supportive base for the sleeper. On top of the frames, a mattress would have been the main sleeping surface. Egyptian mattresses don't survive very often, but there are two possibilities. The mattresses may have been made of linen folded into bundles, or leather stretched across the surface. In one tomb painting, there is a proper mattress, a stretch of linen which might be filled with straw or reeds. So it seems like there was a variety of options, and wealthy Egyptians may have switched between them, depending on the temperature or the occasion. Most of the time, mattresses don't survive archaeologically. There is a very simple reason for this. If the mattress was made of linen, thieves would have stolen it early on. Linen was a great item to steal from tombs. It was easy to transport, almost impossible to trace, and eminently practical. Golden jewellery attracts attention if you're trying to wear it or offload it. Linen, though, 
that's the best thing to steal. I have quite a soft spot for ancient textiles, particularly how they are manufactured and traded. I might dedicate a mini-episode to that one day, if people are interested. If you'd like to hear about ancient linens, fabrics, and how they were made, let me know via email or social media. Moving on, the other part of a bed was the pillow. Well, not really a pillow. The Egyptians used headrests. You've probably seen these before, curved pieces of wood in a T-shape supported by a base. They are tall and look like a rather unpleasant way to sleep, but apparently they're quite comfortable, if you know how to use them. The headrest is kind of misnamed, it's more like a neck rest. The idea was to place it under your neck while sleeping on your side. Your shoulder would give you the height needed, and the headrest's surface would nestle against your neck. Then, your head would be suspended freely on the other side. This seems to have some advantages. If nothing else, it helped the head stay cool during the warm evenings. For another, it stops you from sleeping on your ear. Have you ever had those mornings where you wake up and you've been resting too long on one ear? It sucks. Well, the Egyptians may have avoided that particular discomfort. So the headrests, which seem so uncomfortable, are actually quite practical. The mattresses, which are rare, were also functional. The beds, which are lovely, were probably reasonably comfortable. For the wealthy, or even middle-class Egyptian, sleeping arrangements might have been a satisfactory and restful experience. After sleeping under the cool sky on their surprisingly comfortable beds, an Egyptian man or woman might wake to their morning routine. First, the essentials. Empty the bowels in a ditch behind the house, one that could be covered with sand and dirt, and perhaps turned into a garden. Then, that business complete, they would wash hands, clean the face and body, and begin their daily tasks. Washing probably happened either by the riverside, or in the courtyard of the house. For poor Egyptians, a trough of water or a trip to the Nile had to suffice. For the wealthy, servants might pour water over their heads, using a basket or sieve to create a shower effect. No soap, as far as we can tell, although they may have used oils or animal fats to keep the skin moist and prevent it drying out. To dry off, they used rolls of linen or pieces of cloth. Once dry, they could begin the daily toilette. Cleanliness may have been quite important to 18th dynasty Egyptians. We know that Herodotus describes the Egyptians as a fastidious, almost neurotic people, but he was writing in a much later time period, and we cannot assume that those standards were true in the New Kingdom. I'll put my money down on the idea that most people bathed in some way every day or two, but anything more than that? Hard to say. Anyway, having cleansed the body of its impurities, a wealthy Egyptian might touch up some of the more visible blemishes on their face. This is where the daily makeup comes into play. Firstly, an Egyptian would cleanse the skin, moisturize with fats and oils. Then came the eyeshadow. Surviving pigments show that eyeshadow was often green, or wudju, and black, or mestemet. These seem to have been the most popular colors. As you probably know, the Egyptian eyeshadow was applied with a stick, drawn around the edges of the eyelid, and then extended out a short way towards the ear. The Egyptian eye, quote-unquote, mimicked the more impressive eyes of Horus or Ra, and was a fetching look to boot. 
Naturally, this look is the go-to for modern goths and anyone hoping to add some class to their makeup efforts in general. Back in my teenage days, clad in black and long hair, the cat's eye was the best way to stand out. Fun times. To make eyeshadow, the Egyptians would crush the pigment into powder, mix it with oil or fat, and then apply it gently to the eyelids. They seem to have mixed it up a bit like you might mix paint. The pigments would be kept in special jars made of faience, or, if you were really rich in the 18th dynasty, glass. These probably served as the centerpiece for any daily routine. As far as we can tell from tomb objects, jars of makeup were probably kept in a basket or box, and this might have been kept next to the bed or pulled out on the daily basis. Makeup was done simple and effective, no hour-long YouTube tutorials for them. With that done, the last touch was a dash of perfume. The Egyptians might use myrrh, date palm, or frankincense to add a sweet smell and hide any body odours. Perfumes don't survive as well, but some ancient texts reference body odour and suggest that perfumes were a necessity if you wanted to appear more than working class. In the famous text called The Satire of the Trades, a scribe throws shade at a variety of manual labour professions. In one text, he remarks how one stinks more than fish eggs. The idea is clear. Want to show your station? Better smell the part. So an Egyptian would use fats or oils to keep their skin supple, pigments to colour their eyes, and perfume to make them smell nice. Finally, they might also use colours to decorate their hands and hair. This one is hard to trace because it usually shows up on mummies, and it might be a funerary practice only. But, some mummies have hair that has been dyed red, and traces of yellow-red henna appear on fingernails, palms, and the soles of feet. This is a habit that can still be seen today in some parts of Egypt. As usual, the old styles remain the best. To inspect themselves and get a good look at their effects, the wealthy Egyptian used a polished bronze mirror. These were round, usually held up by a handle in the shape of a naked woman. When sufficiently scoured and smoothed, the bronze mirror provided a good reflection and helped guide the hands when applying makeup. Of course, we are talking about the Egyptian 1%, and if they could have someone else do a job for them, they did. Just like the servants who cooked, cleaned their dishes, and managed their house, the aristocrats also had beauty attendants. Just to round out the episode, I'll give a shout out to the makeup artists of New Kingdom Egypt. The best known beauty workers were manicurists and pedicurists. We see these people as early as the Old Kingdom, where they show up in tombs applying their trade to the hands and feet of the owner. These beauty workers could be both male and female. In one scene, two males do their work on the hands of the tomb owner. The deceased, also a man, holds his hands out while the manicurists work. He says plaintively, don't hurt them, while one of the manicurists says, I'll make this pleasurable for you, love. You can practically hear the conversation today. So, a day began with a clean-out, a wash, some makeup, and a touch-up. Pretty soon, the noble was ready to dress and ready to start their day. They headed off to begin their business, and we leave them here to enjoy their routine.
Looking back at the overall picture, the elites of 18th dynasty Thebes had a more comfortable and sumptuous lifestyle than any era before. Their access to high-quality materials like wood was far greater than earlier periods, and their diet was richer and more varied. Their homes were larger, probably built more securely, and certainly decorated with far more elaborate furnishings. If you were to visit an aristocratic home around 1370 BCE, you would find a busy but well-ordered space, with social hierarchies and relationships woven into every aspect of the building. If these homes are hard to visualise, take a look at the podcast website. I've provided images of some modern reconstructions. We will have to stop here for today. As much as I would like to do a deep dive into every aspect of life, there just isn't time. Not to worry, that research engine keeps on grinding, and there will be more episodes about different features of ancient livelihoods. For now, we bid farewell. On the next episode, we return to the royal sphere. It seems that the pharaoh has some interesting ideas about his status and place in the world. Amonhotep III, greatest of all kings, has begun to get ideas that he is not quite a mortal man, but rather something more. Join me soon for episode 105, in which we explore the living divinity of Amonhotep III, sometimes better known as the Sun King. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity? What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 